You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When the anthills began erupting, thereby opening the first phase of the war, the humans viewed the event with amusement rather than urgency. There would be no Hymenoptera Unis to reorient them toward a new destiny. Instead, the humans responded piecemeal. They evacuated the infested villages, retreating again and again. They attempted the use of pesticide, all the while bickering among themselves about the environmental side effects. This concern seemed especially absurd to the Queen, given that their species had done more than any other to pollute the earth. When the pesticides failed, the human governments acted swiftly to quarantine the countries that were now overrun. Some humans were misguided enough to expect fences to repel the ants. In fact, the fences were meant to keep the fleeing refugees from entering the wealthier countries. When the insects simply dug underneath the barriers, the humans used a line of fire to hold them back. The flaming borders were so long that they could be seen from space, glowing orange ribbons sending up columns of smoke. The humans congratulated themselves for their ingenuity and solidarity and resolved to retake the land as soon as possible. Several weeks later, the queen ordered the alphas to attack. At first, the alphas were instructed to prey on children only. Images of the hideous beasts carrying off screaming students from schoolhouses appeared on television screens across the world. Soldiers deserted their posts and returned home to protect their families. No one could determine a rational explanation for what the ants were doing. Rather than organizing a counterattack, confused military leaders focused on building protective bunkers for themselves. Scientists argued over the cause of such behavior. Civilians turned on their political leaders. More than once, rioters overran military checkpoints to drag senators, governors, presidents, and dictators out of their mansions in order to hang them, or worse. Predictably, religious leaders agreed that this atrocity was a punishment from the heavens. The alphas were beasts from hell, rising from the humans' worst nightmares for a final reckoning. Robert Rapino has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. His work has appeared in The Literary Review, Night Train, Hobart, The Coachella Review, and more. Rapino is an editor for the Oxford University Press, where he also pitches for their softball team. He's a quarterback for their flag football team, and his first novel is Mort. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. This is a fascinating novel that manages to do some very interesting things. Give us an idea of where you first encountered the idea for this novel. Yeah, um, so I I record my dreams, and I I, I had a dream in which a um, uh, an alien spacecraft was hovering over the neighborhood where I grew up, and the aliens had somehow turned the animals into these bipedal, intelligent creatures who were hunting down humans. And it was a very upsetting image. I remember specifically the the animals walking down a gangplank from this giant flying saucer, and it was very upsetting. And it, it just raised a lot of questions that I had been wrestling with, you know, about, you know, animal rights, the role of uh, humans in the world, uh, the way humans look at themselves, you know, the question of if animals were intelligent, how would they view us? And over time, I, I just started to pull together many of the weird influences from my life from like cheesy 80s science fiction movies and, and just different ideas of philosophy, bringing all these things together. 
eventually I, I ended up making the main character the cat that I grew up with. Uh, the character of Sebastian is is based on uh, the family pet. It made sense to make him the the sort of protagonist and all this. This get this regular guy who gets caught up in the mix of this completely insane uh, situation. And then I decided to change the aliens to ants because I wanted the the vi- villain of the book to actually have a good motivation for hating the humans. Aliens showing up on Earth wouldn't have that sort of visceral anger at humans. I think ants would. So once I had all those things in place, that's when the story started moving along. So that took a few months of research and thinking about it. But then once the story started going, then it sort of flowed from there. So you had this dream and then did a little research and then just essentially launched into the novel? Pretty much. I mean, the the, the first draft is quite different uh, from what is actually published. The first draft takes place many, many years after the so-called war with no name where, you know, the humans have been virtually wiped out. Late, you know, after showing to some people, they said, look, you really need to explore that war a lot more because that is just completely insane. And we can't we can't go, you know, usually it's the right thing to do to drop people in the middle of things, as they say. But in this case, I needed to go back and sort of build the world of that apocalyptic situation. So then so that's when I started adding the scenes where, you know, this cat becomes intelligent. He joins this war against humanity, joins this elite unit of assassins called the Red Sphinx who hunt down humans. And uh, a lot of the material that takes place in that time period was written much later in the process. You would do some interesting things, I think, with just the world building in this. How much did you know in advance? How much did you draft? Or uh, I think, you know, the, the way I end up drafting this stuff is that I probably explode the backstory too much. And then I need a, a, a third, a, another person to come in and say, you don't need that much backstory, actually. So I really, err in, in the early drafts of the book, I erred on the side of going into a lot of detail about what the cat was thinking, what the backstory was, and, and each of the characters that come along. There's a thing about literature where you where you try to, or about novels specifically, where you, you um, try to explain the motivation of a character, but you only have a certain number of pages and you only have a certain amount of patience from the reader. So that was a big struggle with the book, trying to figure out, you know, where can I use some exposition? Where can I use backstory to actually build this or not? And, 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 you know, and then, then how much... How much is enough so that I can continue with the story and go on with this sort of adventure rousing thing that you're you're talking about? That was a big struggle with this book because, you know, I really did want it to be a page turner, but it's still at the same time have characters who have these stories. You know, each each character has its own little, you know, traumatic experience that he or she is dealing with. I don't know if I'm totally answering your question. <laughs> I feel like there's a million things that go on. But yeah, I, I guess I think the, the 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 two opening chapters end up doing it as best I could where you're looking at the world in the first chapter through the cat's eye, and he really just is very naive, doesn't understand how humans are. And it's that second chapter where you get the queen's perspective, and the queen is sort of omniscient. The queen is able to gather in uh, the memories of every single member of her colony. And that chapter ends up serving as the big world engine of this book, because that's where the queen gives the the history of the war, the motivation for it. Basically, many years are summarized in that chapter, but the, it's sort of snuck in there so that it looks, it, it's more like you're building the character of the queen as well, because she's sort of traumatized by this war, uh, has turned into a very mean and miserable and lonely character as a result of it. So I was trying to sneak in the world building along with the character building. I mean, it does, it's, 
Hey, doesn't always work. There's a lot of compromise you have to make when, you, when you're writing a book like this with this many characters and so forth. Well, one of the things I think you do very effectively in the opening chapter is create a world of a cat that is happy and secure and filled with warmth. And then we see that kind of start to break up. And we are, since we know more than the cat does, as we're humans after all, we understand that there's an apocalypse unfolding in front of the cat's eyes that the cat doesn't quite understand. And I think you do a great job of creating a kind of narrative and character tension there where it's very poignant. And that is very difficult to pull off, to keep that kind of poignance and reality. So we believe the cat, we're with the cat, and even to the kind of Kennedy moment, where were you when? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when the when the animals up, launched their uprising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, I think the scene that was probably the most difficult to write there, and I don't think I'm giving away too much here, but the scene where the cat is watching television, mm-hmm. because uh, I wanted to at least give some idea of what was happening outside, but also. I, I didn't want to actually say that the cat knows he's watching the news. That doesn't make any sense. So, the, you know, the cat just sees these images on the screen. He sees his owners very upset. He sees the father come in and shut the TV off and the kids are carried out crying. You know, it's supposed to tell the story through the emotions of his masters who he believes he's protecting. You know, he believes he's like the protector of the house, even though that's actually not the case. He's more of a sort of an ornament, you know, and that, you know, and that the realization that he comes to about that is supposed to be very heartbreaking. You know, he, um, you know, I said earlier that he's based on the cat that I grew up with. There's a scene in the book where he attacks a babysitter and that was pretty much word for word what happened to me when I was eight. I actually, we were pinned in a room once and the, the babysitter was hiding from Sebastian because the cat was, was going after her thinking that the she was attacking us or something. The cat thought he was a dog. He's a crazy cat. And when my mom came home, the babysitter's leaning out the window saying, he's trying to kill us. My mom's like, who's trying to kill you? And the babysitter, your cat. So that was, you know, the, the zaniness of the actual cat I grew up with. And he did have a friend named Sheba, a dog that, you know, I think that's why he thought he was a dog because he was, he had a, a dog girlfriend or something. I don't know. So, yeah. All right. <laughs> I thought you did a great job with that. And, and that is a really critical part of the novel because once we're invested in the emotions of Sebastian and it, his nostalgia for this kind of idyllic past where he exists with Sheba, the dog with whom he's friends, that's that to me is a big part of the engine that turns this novel. It's a, In many ways, you would could consider this novel really is a love story. Yes, a very unorthodox love story. Uh, and it's... <laughs> and, you know, I think the fact that the, he it's interspecies and the fact that Sebastian is neutered and therefore doesn't have the same urges that a typical, you know, hero on a, cre- a quest would have. So that that I was hoping that would add some kind of complexity to their relationship. It, it was Sebastian is neutered, but Sheba wants to have children and has all the, you know, the usual dog urges. And so, you know, that was supposed to add sort of a sadness to it as well. You know, his his devotion to her is more of a friendship. I think there's a Greek story, Damon and Pythias. Is that the, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's almost like that, you know, this friendship is so, is so tight that, that it, it's almost like romantic love, but not really. Well, I think you've done a good job too, in terms of the science fiction aspect and building this world. And what this brings me to is that, um, Pushcart Prize, the Literary Review, Night Train, Hobart, the Coachella Review, 
not known for publishing a lot of science fiction. So no. <laughs> uh, talk about making that break for you as a writer between kitchen window epiphany uh, genre and <laughs> the science fiction genre. Well, you know, I... I think because I I went to an MFA program mm-hmm. uh, at Emerson and and I am really glad I did the program it helped me enormously it, it is but you know de- most MFA programs are not that enthusiastic about science fiction and so but but the thing is though I think that background in in literary fiction really helped here because I was I I was hoping to be able to write this hokey science fiction story that still had real characters in it. And I think literary fiction still dominates that. It still has that that character building that, you know, that you really need in order for a story to, to proceed. Um, because, yeah, like I said, the, the, originally when I wrote the, the story, those that uh, chapter you're talking about was much later in the book. That, that whole experience of Sebastian as a pet was simply a flashback. And I think looking at it again and looking at it from that lens of, of literary fiction, I said, no, we need to devote more time to that. We need to have that be, as you say, the, the engine of the story. Otherwise, it's just giant ants destroying things and, you know, battles and stuff like that. Um, but to, to make the, the break, though, I think was I, I wrote a couple of the typical autobiographical novels. One of them was actually my thesis at Emerson. It was, it was based on my time in the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And those are the novels, really, though, that I wrote to, to sort of teach myself to write. Really, if you want to teach yourself to write, you should focus on short fiction rather than novels because novels just take too long and they're very easy to quit on. Uh, but I, once I was done with those, then I started moving more into, into the science fiction stuff because I just – it was just more fun to write. You know, it's <laughs> just it, – and there is a nostalgic kind of thing to it, you know, because I grew up – with Ghostbusters and Back to the Future and all these, you know, all the nerdy science fiction stuff, Star Wars and Star Trek. And, you know, you definitely see there's definitely some homage to it in this book that that will be hard to miss for fellow nerds out there, I think. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's it's really pleasurable in that uh, um, aspect, too. And you mentioned the, the scene with the queen. And I thought you did a really good job because the in providing us. Um, a piece of that is largely expository. It's what and you know can be called an info dump, but it's an info dump that, as you say, advances the character of the queen. And I'm wondering how much world building got done in that chapter, and how much of that was driven by the queen when you were sitting down. Had that been parsed out before, and did you have to bring it back in and redo it? The, you know, one of the things I'm I'm actually kind of uh, embarrassed to admit, and it it's just. This is where you really need to rely on other people to help with your novels is that the original draft of this novel didn't have any point of view chapters from from the perspective of the queen, which I can't believe now looking at it now because that is such an important part of the book. Originally, that chapter was, as you call it, a straight up info dump out of nowhere in the first draft of this book. I just put in an omniscient character an omniscient narrator who said, OK, everyone sit down. Here's. Here's what the not, here's what the war is all about. Well, Bob. And, yeah, and it and honestly, I was joking about it before. I I ended up sounding like uh, the character of Dark Helmet in the movie Spaceballs. At the very beginning, he <laughs> he just says what the plot is and then looks at the camera and says, "Everybody got that?" That's pretty much what I did, and what a bad idea that was. And so, you know, once I I came to the conclusion that the queen really needed to be her own character, that was really the best way to do it. because part of the thing that is driving her anger is the fact that her mind is polluted with this information 
for thousands of years, and it's driving her crazy. So the fact that she would be the one to have access to all this knowledge and who would sort of share it with her daughters in this communion, this this ritual that's being performed in that scene where she's um, connecting Antenna with their daughters and telling them the history of the war, it just it just made sense, and it was you know meant to show how she had become a prisoner of her own of her own uh, designs for this war. You know, she's literally a prisoner stuck in this dungeon of the, of her making, but she's also trapped in this destiny she's made for herself. As we see this world unfold, for us as readers, one of the real pleasures of this is, and it's kind of terrifying too, and in many ways is something of a horror novel in that um, seeing your world undone so handily uh, is, is quite frightening. So uh, this is harkens back to um, stuff like uh, The Day After and other novels where in other works where we see our own world torn apart mostly by our own incompetence. Yeah, and, and you know, the passage that I read uh, just now, I mean, is definitely meant to, to, to be an indictment of, you know, the fact that if, if something like this were to happen, you know, we probably would waste too much time you know, tweeting about it or something instead of, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I think there, I mean, you know, you could argue that's happening now with climate change or something like the fact that we're, you know, there are more people interested in the Super Bowl than in, than in, you know, fixing this, the fact that we're facing doom here. So yeah, it, it, the goofing on human incompetence ended up, uh, I actually had to tone down some of the editorializing, actually. I think my, my editor was like, look, I we get it. You're <laughs> like, just go a little easy on the humans, okay? They've had, a, they've had a tough go of it in this book, so we don't have to keep, you know, grinding them down by our heels there, so. <sighs> uh, I really like the, the, after the apocalypse, we find Sebastian alone. He's wandering the... Uh, the ruins and there's a, almost a road warrior feel. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, I think that one of the things this book does is it reminds us of a lot of stuff. I mean, you, you can think of, as I was saying, the day after. There's certainly an, an animal farm riff going on here. There's road warriors. There's all the science fiction and world building of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. Uh, but I think it, it you keep it cohesive enough to um, it's its own thing. It never that never becomes a distraction. And I'm wondering how much of your influences you had to like tease out in the process. Uh, how many influences did you tease out? Meaning, uh, did you we, have to when you went when you were writing this? Did you have to go back and say that's a little too much? Like, or that's oh, I've got got it. I love this. I love this. I love this. But I've got to kill it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, I was. Uh, I was doing an interview in Brooklyn about this. Um, it was one of our reading events, and the guy interviewing me, and it was the perfect question to ask, and I was happy to answer. He's like, so what episodes of Star Trek did you rip off of? And I was like, oh, I'll tell you. And it was, you know, the Borg episodes and the inner light. And uh, But um, there were actually, in the editing process, I found that I was having probably a little too much fun with the action movie tropes specifically. Mm -hmm. There was a scene in particular, um, there's a scene late in the book where Mort and his friend uh, Wawa, who's a pit bull, are trying to get rescued by this uh, human resistance. And um, there's a scene where the, the guy's there to rescue them and he, and he tells them, oh, we only have room for one of you. And in the original draft, Mort grabs the guy by the neck and growls at him and goes, 
wrong answer like that. <laughs> and uh, my editor was like, look, I, I know you're having fun with this, but that's too action movie cliche. We have to get rid of it. I was like, oh, come on. No, it's it, uh, he's like, no, no, no. We have to. I was like, all right, fine, fine. <laughs> so there were a lot of, uh, yeah, sort of like die hard, you know, or like Schwarzenegger, like dumb one liners that I had to cut out. I felt really I was like, yeah, this is going too far. We got to let it go. Um, and but then some of them I kept in there. You know, there, there's a scene. Well, and you'll see them. I mean, especially with the character of uh, Cul-de-Sac, who's a bobcat who sort of like a Clint Eastwood kind of character who who um, is very violent. And, and sometimes you see, in some cases you see the violence he's uh, coming from a mile away, but it's still sort of fun to, to see him you know, acting out. Well, talk about creating the cast of characters in this because you have all this animal species to choose from. You have human characters to riff off of. And that must uh, be fun to kind of, there's a multipli- multiplying effect there that's fun for the readers to to in, to enjoy. And you can tell that you're having fun as a writer, too. Yeah. It, well, I think the the basis for a lot of the characters has to do with the question of, like, what would, it, you know, if animals were to join together in a world without humans, um, what what obstacles would they face? And obviously the list is many. But one of the things that I kind of became obsessed with was the fact that, you know, I think that animals who lived in the wild would be looked at differently than animals who were pets. You know, the pets, in my book, the pets are sort of looked at as people who know about humans, but who also were sort of collaborators and sort of like living a cushy life while the animals in the wild were, you know, fending them for themselves. And then below them are the former livestock who are regarded by a lot of the animals in the world that I've built um, as sort of, you know, irredeemable. Like they didn't, they couldn't figure out what was happening to them. They weren't bright enough to figure out that they were about to be eaten or slaughtered or whatever. So that sort of caste system in my book ends up informing a lot of the characters in some ways like for example there's there is the character i mentioned of the cul-de-sac the bobcat who is you know very brave and very driven and very independent and then there's also the a character named bonaparte a pig who is sort of he's in a lot of ways this very um you sort of root for him because he's a he's a, a very uh de- he's determined to be a member of this elite unit of soldiers even though they look down on him even though he he actually doesn't have the opposable thumbs that the other characters do, so he's always coming up with different ways to sort of uh, get over what is what is essentially would be for him a disability, you know. So that was that was a way of informing the character. Also, the character of Wawa is a pit bull who was uh, raised as a dog fighter, and I think I came up with that character. I'm from Philadelphia, and I came up with the character around the time of when Michael Vick, the football player, was had joined the Philadelphia Eagles because he had been in jail for running a dogfighting operation. I thought it would be interesting to have a character who was came from that that um, situation. It's just a, you know, a very difficult and upsetting uh, part of the book actually where where we get Wawa's backstory and how she's uh you know, she realize she learns that she's basically a gladiator fighting in the Roman Colosseum, you know. Anybody who's ever owned a pet knows that pet deaths and any kind of animal deaths, it's it's traumatic. Yeah. It's as traumatic as you know, losing a friend or maybe even losing a child, depending on how attached you are to the pet or how long it's been in your life. Talk about uh, modulating the heart rending we the heart rending knob. Uh, it's well, it's <laughs> to quote uh, Spinal Tap. It's pretty much dialed up to eleven for most of the book. 
<laughs> most of the book. I, I, I um, and a lot of the modulating again did come from my uh, intrepid editors at Soho, who were who were like, "Look, just just ease back a little bit. Just take the take the foot off the pedal a little bit. We don't need that much carnage and uh, whatever." Um, yeah, I don't know if there was a scene in particular that I cut out, um, but I I definitely wanted to show sort of on, on the one hand I wanted to show the effects of the war and like the trauma of of going through a war. I wanted to show just the difficulties of rebuilding after a war, um, which would include, um, you know, things like the food supply, but it would also include mundane things like putting together, uh, you know, rebuilding houses and stuff like that. Um, and then I also wanted to show just sort of the unintentional cruelty that would happen to animals, even from well-intentioned humans. I mean, Sebastian is neutered and he is declawed, which if that were to happen to a human would be a terrible crime. But we do that to animals to, uh, you know, in some cases to make them healthier, to make them safer and so forth. But if they were intelligent, I think they'd be a little upset with us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, it, you know, that's one of the things that, that I wanted to sort of explore, just the um, just showing that it's not, you know, it's not just that humans are evil and they're, they're mean to animals. I mean, in, in the case of Sebastian, he did have a family that loved him, but when he realized what that love actually entailed that, then he realized that, you know, actually this is not what I thought it was. I thought I was really a member of the family. I'm, I'm just a pet. Uh, when he first hears the word pet, he's almost baffled by it. Like what, what does that, it means you own me, even though I'm a person. Well, it too, um, one of the, uh, big uh, parts of, the reading experience of this book is uh, turning the tables between humans and animals, and um, the uh, you know the whole ethics of bringing up animals to eat them, um, whether or not how that feels when the tables are precisely turned, and I mean I I'll admit it I had a nice steak last night. Yeah, right. No, I. <laughs> But on the other hand, when you read this book, having that steak becomes, you know, a different kind of experience. Uh, are you a vegan? I'm not. It's a it's a work in progress. <laughs> I'm, I've definitely cut my consumption of meat by a great deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I also grew up in a family where we, you know, it was just a meat eating family. And I, I I'm trying to reduce it to the point where I'm not even eating meat anymore but it's it's actually kind of difficult i've never and it, you know i've never um i don't have great excuses for this but basically i i've, I've never smoked i've, I've never i don't think i have a drinking problem but i i for some reason it's hard to kick meat permanently i never i i'm yeah i don't know i i'm i'm working on it though and i think that you know one of the things i touch on in the book is just the fact that you know i think in the in the future we are going to have to take a hard look at this because we have an environmental concern when it comes to the factory farming of animals. And we also have a moral concern because I think the field of neuroscience really is pointing toward the fact that animals do have consciousness. And, uh, you know, certainly if, if we could really determine that an animal suffers in the way that a human does, that would have to raise some questions for us. Uh, you know, some very difficult questions. And, um, 
Yeah, I don't know what the answers are. I mean, because, you know, obviously there are parts of the world where this isn't a discussion to even worth having. I mean, there are parts of the world where people just the food supply isn't as abundant and it's it's not even worth debating over whether you have to eat animals or not. You know, here we, we, we are having that debate. It's an interesting one. Uh, overall, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to reduce the meat consumption, but I'm, it's a slow process. I wish I could brag more about this, but I, I can't. It's not just the way humans treat animals. It's the way the humans treat the earth as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, and I think, you know, what, what ends up being a, an idea that gets repeated a lot is that the root of the human's cruelty is the idea that they think that they own the earth. And uh, this is something that, that the queen feels just needs to be completely eradicated. And, and uh, Well, they're, they're not big on religion either. It, uh, th- she does have some choice things to say about uh, religious belief, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, one of the, I think that um, by the, the trope that you've chosen, this kind of science fiction trope, I think you do a good job of creating enough detail so that these uplifted creatures and the ants and that whole scenario is written well enough and seems gritty enough that the adventure aspect actually, I think, ends up, rather than counterbalancing the philosophical aspect, uh, underscores it and makes it, We since we buy that this could seems to be happening and could happen, it makes the philosophical concerns more pertinent. Yeah, and, and you know, there, there's sort of, I think in a, in a novel, if you're going to have an action scene, it really does have to adv- both advance the plot and build the character in some way. The character has to be forced to make some kind of choice. So I tried to be very careful with that. I didn't want to just have an explosion or a car chase just because it was fun and because we've had a lot of, you know, characters sit around talking for a while, so let's have a, a fight or something. I think you can get away with that in movies, but in novels, they really do have to serve multiple purposes, not just entertainment. So I, I hope I succeeded in some of that. I know, you know, obviously, uh, you know, maybe some people are, are fed up with the battles by the end of the book, but, uh, you know, it they were meant to sort of force uh, the characters into difficult situations and to make choices and to learn about who they were. And if they're not, if, if an action scene in a, in a novel is not doing that, I think it's, it's, it's uh, wasted, I think. You know, um, too, I, I think that uh, the omniscient perceptions of the Ant Queen, they're some of the most entertaining uh, parts of the book. I really like that. And that's uh, something I don't, don't think is quite as easily done in the kitchen window epiphany genre. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. I basically, I, I in a way, you could say I cheat with the queen because the queen has access to these memories and she can relive them. And so uh, in some cases, she even relives a scene that takes place earlier in the book. And that was meant to sort of get a new perspective on what had happened and to sort of show uh, for her, I mean, to, not to give too much away, but it's a, it's a scene that involves uh, Sebastian and Sheba um, in the house, you know, being together, being friends. When she views that scene uh, by accessing this memory, uh, it's supposed to be a very poignant moment because she is basically doomed to live in this in this lair that she's created where she's lonely and, and has she only has this war. So when she looks at that scene, it's supposed to uh, sort of show you know, to illustrate that. But yeah, it, 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 but that is, you're right. Science fiction allows you to sort of, these are the rules of my world and 
you're all either on board or you're not, you know. So, <laughs> well, once you get into this book, I think um, most readers are going to get right on board. And I think that's what makes it it's an interesting feeling to read this book, because I, on one hand, you have a lot of the kind of animal farm aspects. On the other hand, it's fun to read. Now, as regards the animal farm aspects, no matter who you put in charge of a government, as a as God, I hate to say this, but government itself becomes the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, and to be clear, yeah, the queen is convinced that that yeah, this this is a flaw with humans that is uh, built into them through evolution. Um, I mean, a flaw that goes all the way back to to when we, our ancestors were single celled organisms. Yeah, she just she thinks this is the flaw with with the humans, and she's hoping that. By uplifting the animals, perhaps they can learn from this and not fall victim to it, basically. But the, but when I say the it, though, is is this idea that they're somehow chosen to be the, the leaders of the world and that the world belongs to them and that they have dominion over the other creatures. She just thinks that this is, uh, you know, and that, and that there's an afterlife waiting for them. She feels that all of these ideas put together end up corrupting all forms of government, all forms of leadership and inter- interaction and philosophy and everything. Uh, so in a, in a way, I mean, she's dismissing so much of human thought, uh, th- you know, that that to the point where, yeah, she does regard it as a virus. It's, it's yeah. She's not a very pleasant character. She's a bit of a downer. <laughs> I don't know if you well, noticed that. <laughs> that's the that's the uh, that's the uh, plan for for the villain in the piece. You also have uh, talk about some uh, in the lost years. You talk about you know we get these feelings of uh, how a, an active and required military views the uh, civilians. And there's a great line where where uh, one of the characters says, "Somebody has to protect these trash pictures." And, trash pickers and school teachers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it it really boy, that story the story would not work if Sebastian were just, you know, a, a construction worker. I think that character needed to join up with a military unit and and sort of acquire some of the prejudices they have against the pe- the very people that they're protecting, you know. And especially since he falls under the command of this uh sort of gung-ho bobcat who um his his entire life is warfare. His entire life is conflict, and uh, yeah, it was it was sort of fun. I mean, and you know, I I know a lot. Of, I, I was in the military. I was not in the military myself, but I had no, having known a lot of people in that in that uh, walk of life, it, it uh, I think I end up stealing a few things, a few, few observations from them. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I do. I know a lot of Marines are like, you know, if the Marines ran this. It would be, better, you know, my dad was a Marine. So, you know, I've had that. I've, I've heard that before, you know. If the Marines ran. <laughs> Things would be better. Things would be, well, there you go. But also, too, I think you do a good job of taking Mort out of that military mindset and bringing him back and just putting him in the midst of some of the more mundane aspects of not you. What you do is very interesting because you do. You build a world that's our world, then you tear, unbuild that world, you build a new world, and you unbuild that world. So you're kind of doing this world building and unbuilding, and uh, that gives, drives both the plot and, I think, uh, the themes as well. Yeah, yeah, and actually the, um, the, that was one of the more difficult things to write because I think that was definitely the, the, the part where Mort returns to uh, civilian life. 
was difficult to write because it was hard to set that up where it was not just an information dump, where it wasn't just exposition about, okay, here's the new rules of this place. We have the animals are rebuilding, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that ended up being really difficult. So I had to set up some scenes that just show sort of the the difficulties of it. There's a scene, for example, where Mort is selected to move back into his old house, and he's set up with a real estate agent who's going to put him back in his old house. And just the sort of inconveniences of that and just the, like, all right, I got this pencil pusher who's in charge of things. And, you know, uh, that one, that was a section of the book that probably got cut a good amount because it just was taking too long and, you know, we need to get on with things. So just put as much detail in as you can and let's let's get on with the with the story. That was one of the really difficult parts to write, I think. Well, also, too, I think the uh, a lot of the power of this book derives from uh, s- scenes of urban battle. A- and for us, we can it's an interesting kind of dissonance because we're reading scenes where we're kind of the villains and we're being beat down, but we're react in our minds we're thinking about all the scenes you know that we see now of urban uh, battle in the Middle East and where wherever we decide to to shoot at one another. Yeah, um, I <laughs> I have to admit I I, I uh, probably needed to do a lot more research on this. I mean, I really I I should have I probably should have read a, something about Stalingrad or something. When I think of urban warfare, I think Stalingrad and that movie um, Enemy at the Gates, especially. You know, just there's something surreal about having the worst of humanity, a, a war, taking place, you know, in the middle of a strip mall. There's something very upsetting about that. It's just a, it's just a total failure of human civilization when, you're, when you have to have a battle on that kind of, in that kind of territory instead of in an open field or, in a, you know, a valley or something. You're, you're doing it, you know, in the McDonald's parking lot or something. You know, that, that was really meant to show, like, the sort of the the failure of human civilization and also just the sort of desperation of it as well, the desperation of the situation, you know, the, the fact that the animals were relying on this in some ways, but they're willing to destroy it uh, in order to eradicate the, what they think is an even bigger threat, which is humans. So. Well, that's hard. Uh, but I think, too, that the one of the enjoyable aspects of this novel is that feeling of dissonance, of Everything being turned upside down, exactly upside down, but also being incredibly and unpleasantly familiar. So, um, as a writer, do you do you uh, play with that kind of uh, notion? Do you think, okay, this is this? I've got this turned upside down. I'm going to just cant it this way or that way. Yeah, I I, I did a good amount. I, yeah, I, I I do try to. To play with it, I think, yeah, the whole idea of juxtaposition, I, I think, in these things is, is supposed to be the really upsetting thing. I think the scene in particular where Mort returns home and sees that several of the buildings have just been knocked over by giant anthills uh, that have just erupted from the ground. And, and uh, so now the neighborhood looks different. It, it looks almost the same, but it it's also different in a very ghastly and upsetting way. Um I guess another scene in the book that I, I was trying to do what you're what you're saying. Um, there's a scene later where they come across a very large traffic jam, and Mort is walking through 
and it, it's an ancient traffic jam. It's uh, it's it's been sitting there for since the war, and and he comes to the he looks at it sort of from a detective's perspective, saying like, okay, well, the ants must have attacked from here. The humans must have run this way, and he looks at the cars, all the SUVs, and like the baby seats, and the license plates, and the bumper stickers, and so forth, and tries to come up with an understanding of what their lives, what what the lives of these people must have been like right before their lives ended in a truly horrific way, which is getting eaten by giant ants. Uh, you know, just, just looking at things like, you know, I think at one point he sees a, a, a body of an old woman and just says like, wow, I wonder if that family, I wonder if she died on the way here and maybe the family was hoping to bury her. You know, just, you know, looking at the destruction of all those things and then wondering about the lives of these people. I think that that's an example, I think, of what you're what you're talking about, I think. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's exactly it. And another thing I'm just wondering, as a writer, here you are, you're writing a science fiction novel that has these kind of great action tropes set, you know, in a post-apocalyptic world. I mean, this is all the rage now, but it's entirely unfilmable. <laughs> oh, I know, yes. <laughs> so uh, that's, that must have been a tough choice. Did you get any blowback about that? Uh, unfilmable. Well, <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I still I enjoy the pipe dream of this being turned into a movie, but I do realize it would have to be some kind of extravagant $100 million CGI riddled, you know, epic thing. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I, I didn't let that stop me. It was OK. It was I was having fun with it. And, and um, it's, some of the scenes needed to be needed to be over the top. And, you know, it, it was OK. It wasn't it didn't stop me. <laughs> Well, I, I think too. You the the combination. I think the the one of the the themes of this book is this kind of very sweet and poignant and uh, depressing, as it were, n- nostalgia for you know those kind of sweet and simple times beforehand. I mean, that's in many ways the core driver of this book. We really want things to be kind of happy and sweet and simple again. But right. we've already, what's what's been revealed in all the horror that it dominates the book is that all any of those kind of sweet, simple happiness is underneath that is this veneer of, you know, animal-eating monsters that we are. Yeah, yeah, that is that is one of the realizations that, that the main character in particular comes to is that the thing that he's nostalgic for is in many ways an illusion. And, uh, that's supposed to be, uh, you know, but, but that of course doesn't make him want it any less, you know, <laughs> it, it's, um, uh, yeah, that is supposed to sort of be one of the more, one of the, the complexities I'm adding to all this is the fact that even, even though this character is driven by the desire to go back to the way things were, he he really knows that that's impossible because he's not the same. Uh, no, nothing can be the same. Uh, Sheba can't be the same. So, uh, yeah, that's supposed to be one of the sadder aspects of the book, I guess. Yeah, you can't can't recapture the past. Now, uh, this is a wonderful novel. Where do you go next? Well, uh, I am working on a few projects. I don't know. Uh, I we I have a novella coming out later this year actually with Amazon Kindle singles mm-hmm. um and it's a, it, it is it is a science fiction book it's only about 70 pages and it takes place uh once again in a bombed out uh, Philadelphia um but it takes place in a much much more plausible world so i'm hoping that'll be out in the spring 
Uh, I've been working on some other things as well. I, I have a draft of a YA novel, uh, but that's a couple of years away from even being able to show to, you know, to shop around, I guess. Um, it needs a lot more editing. It is finished, but it just I'm going to have to do a lot more work on it. And um, I've done some preliminary work on on a sequel, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm, you know, maybe we might have some announcement at some point, but I don't know what's uh, it's it's not there's nothing nothing to really announce beyond the fact that I'm just considering it and we're I'm doing some work with it. So now you're an editor for Oxford University Press. Yes. Um, Again, not a big, not noted for its science fiction publications. No. <laughs> Talk about how, you know, that in itself is a bit of a, a, a contradiction in terms, and not unlike what happens in the novel. So uh, here you are working on university uh, literature, criticism. At, at night, you're going home and writing about uh, giant ants. <laughs> giant ants, yes. Uh, you know, it's actually a, it's good for me because I, I don't think I could be a fiction editor because mm-hmm. they would just I I wouldn't get any of my own writing or, or reading done. It would I would be constantly reading fiction, and it just this is actually I I think the work I'm doing with Oxford has helped a lot. Um, so to be specific, I was I was a history major in college, so mm-hmm. the work I'm doing with Oxford is sort of an extension of that. I'm a, a reference editor, and I'm working with three online websites. It's Oxford African American Studies Center, which is edited by Henry Louis Gates, and then Oxford Biblical Studies Online, and Oxford Islamic Studies Online. And the simple way of describing them is, is that they're online encyclopedias with some extra stuff, you know, this extra learning resources and translations and primary sources and so forth. Um, as you know, as you noted already, the book has a lot of stuff, a lot of commentary on religious belief and religious thought. And since I work in the field of religious studies, I'm not a scholar myself, uh, but I, I have access to all this, this uh, thousands of articles. And uh, you know, you may have noticed at the beginning of the book, there's actually the epigraph is from the Book of Numbers. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that there is a talking donkey in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, it's not just a talking snake. There's a talking donkey as well. But you know, having that, um, having access to that information, and also just seeing through the publications we're doing with Oxford, just the 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 issue of religious belief and politics in the world um, that we're witnessing right now is. I mean, I think we're in a very interesting time right now. A, a time where we see America becoming a little more secularized. We see political parties in different parts of the world that are that have a more religious identity and like the question is how do they fit in and how you know how are they going to influence things i mean i just think we're in a completely a really fascinating time right now and so working on these sites and working with these scholars has really i don't know helped to inform the book in a lot of ways i think i think that uh, i 100% agree it, it that now that you explain that, that explains why the philosophy behind it seems uh, kind of nicely modulated, uh, not rigid, but uh, well-organized, I guess, is uh, the way to, to express it. It feels like you – it has good. It has a good skeletal uh, religio-sociological uh, structure down in there. Yeah, I hope so. I, yeah, that, that, was the, that was the plan. But yeah, it's uh... – yeah, I I just I think that religion and and is I, I'm just completely fascinated by it. I love talking about it. I think um, 
the way that it plays out in different societies and different cultures is just, I mean, you'll never go broke talking about it or writing about it. I just, I just think it's, it is the most important sociological issue, you know, just, uh, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, you'll never go, I'll never get bored talking about it or writing about it. So, you know. Robert Rapino's new novel is Mort. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.